0: A lot of socialists who didn't previously sort of talk in this sort of social justice way or have sort of those kind of uh, identitarian um, tendencies. But after 2016, they got sick of being called racist and sexist for supporting Bernie and they got and got religion.
1: The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see- still, them. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many, People in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Freddie DeBoer is a journalist who has written for many mainstream publications and who now has a successful Substack career. His new book, "How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement," is due out on September 5th from Simon and Schuster. Freddie, welcome back to the Diet Soap
0: podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug.
1: Now Let's start talking about your book. Um, how did elites eat the social justice movement? Or put differently, what is an elite and just what did they all eat?
0: Mm, sure. So uh... – <clears throat> The book describes a particular moment in left history, meaning the 2020 and the immediate history of what happened from there, sort of how that we built up to that moment and the ways in which all of that populist energy and that sort of the street protests, the sense of a very organic sort of social movement eventually got sucked up into the machinery of various um, uh, sort of elite institutions and, and enterprises uh, and was sort of dissipated. Uh, but the, I mean, the, the book's argument is that this is not an exception in the history of the American left, that this has been in fact Uh, a recurring feature of uh, American activism and organizing. Um, So the elites are uh, a variety of of different uh, institutions uh, is who I'm sort of pointing the finger at uh, in American life. Um, For example, there is a chapter on the nonprofits, right? The nonprofit industrial complex. So, um, you know, uh, these are Uh, organizations that have special tax status that enables them to be able to be exempt from most taxes so that they can contribute to some sort of charitable uh, purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I refer to them, I mean, uh, borrowing a term from other people um, as the sort of nonprofit industrial complex. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, that to me is, um, I mean, I, I would say maybe that's the most important chapter in the book because um, central to the whole thing is the idea that you don't have to knowingly want to rob a political movement of its organic energy to participate in doing so, and no one is sort of more in that position than the nonprofit organizations. Nonprofits are in many ways essential to the work that we do in left activism. So. I've recently left New York City, but for six years or so, um, I worked with a uh, nonprofit doing organizing in the the tenants rights space in New York City. And they do a lot of really good things. They contribute um, organization that's necessary to do things like when we would go to Albany to yell at legislators, they would be the ones who would organize the buses. Uh, If we're going to do a demo where uh, there was the chance of getting arrested or were getting arrested was the point. They would be the ones who would have the infrastructure necessary to get people out of jail after they got arrested. Nonprofits are able to uh, create at least some of the organization that has been lacking in a lot of prominent sort of less spaces, so most notoriously Occupy, uh, where um, structure and demands and other kind of elements of uh, organization that uh, most people would think are essential were sort of actively rejected, which to the surprise of no one sort of resulted in Occupy not really going anywhere. But there's a dark side to all of this, which is that um, (coughs) institutions always fundamentally serve institutional needs more than anything else. And they have a a, a way of functioning as sort of the, a uh, sort of finger-wagging parent of the American uh, left activist community, right? If you are at a demo and uh, you have some sort of violence breaks out, um, the institutional sort of actors who are the most likely to be saying, don't do that or or, you know, uh, or let's be reasonable or, or don't get too crazy, um, the ones who are most likely to start to say that are the nonprofits, in many cases because they feel that they might be uh, in some way uh, liable for what happens. It, it, there's cases in which it, nonprofits have been found like literally legally liable. Uh, for the behavior of protesters at certain events, but also just in the broader sense that they have to answer to a board, and they have to maintain their uh, their tax status, and they sort of have to maintain a sort of veneer of respectability, and so they tend to be the ones telling people to calm down and to slow down. Beyond that function, they have a habit of sort of sucking people up who are sort of vital and committed activists. And just turning them into bureaucrats and functionaries. So one of the kind of mind-bending elements of 2020 is, um, <clears throat> once it became clear that this was a, a real thing, and institutions in American life wanted to sort of uh, <clears throat> put their stamp on it. So. Planned Parenthood is putting out a on the police statement and investment banks are putting out statements of solidarity with protesters and uh, the military is talking about creating a safe space for black bodies, et cetera, et cetera. One of the ways that a lot of these uh, nonprofits responded to was by cutting checks to people to, to bring them on, right? To, to, to onboard them as employees. Um, and this did result in a lot of young politically oriented black and brown people getting steady work, which is nice. But the problem is, is that you had this recurring phenomenon where um, literally you would have someone in the streets for an entire week. And then the following week, they'd be sitting at a desk filling out forms. Right? So there's a, a tendency for uh, what happens a lot is um, people to get pulled into the apparatus of the institution. And completely independent of their passion or their leftist credentials or their desire to create change. They sort of just become these functionaries. I have a friend who was a um, the uh, <coughs> executive director of a nonprofit, a sort of activism and, or, and organizing focused nonprofit uh, in New York City. And she left after years there. And she just said like, she had shown up with this desire to sort of turn the system upside down and to be a radical. And all her time was spent glad handing donors. All her time was spent um, <coughs> working with the board. And that's just, that's that's sort of inherent to, to institutions. the inside. Foreclose that
1: Tristan law. The School of Materialist Research is a self-sustainable platform where ideas are discussed in ways that would not be possible in conventional academia. The school is defined by its interest in the materialist approach to knowledge. Among its faculty are Julia Cristeva, Amanda Beach, Ben Woodward, Thomas Nail, and Paul Cockshot. The deadline for applications is September 4th, 2023. Check out the link to the School of Materialist Research in the description for this video.
0: The obverse of that is sort of, sort of anti-Iraq stuff. Right. I don't I don't regret doing it. Um, it was formative in a lot of ways. We were right about everything, but, um, and I think that there would have been no point in trying to do a sort of electoralist approach at that point. I don't
1: know. I mean, I was part of the anti-war movement in the early 2000s after 9-11, right? And, and one of the things that uh, I was dealing with in Portland was the fact that the Portland Peaceful Response Coalition originally passed uh, a rule or, or a statement or something. I don't know exactly what, how they, what they were internally, but they declared that it was not going to be a political organization, right? They were going to stay out of politics. And which meant that it was very difficult for PPRC to speak to the politics of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Like we, what I wanted to see happen is for the, the, uh, peace movement a year out from the invasion of iraq to be very dedicated to uh challenging the sanctions on iraq Mm -hmm. saying we shouldn't be directly right now opposing a war that hasn't even been sold yet to the american people we know it's coming somehow the peace movement knew it was going to come but we should instead be trying to change the terrain of electoral politics in Mm -hmm. in the country and be part of a movement to pressure politicians to end the sanctions on, on Iraq, which mm-hmm. even if we lose would change the context of what the debate was around Iraq, or at least mm-hmm. somewhat. And that, I think that's kind of a uh, thinking like in an electoral way when you try to no, yeah. Um So it would be, it would have been possible to try to play that kind of politi- political game on a national level, right. I think with the peace movement, but instead we were just, committed to trying to have the most universally positive face without with as little controversy as possible while opposing the most popular war in american history probably up to that point i mean at least in my lifetime so uh anyway so i i do think you could have had an electoral approach to the peace movement
0: i mean i guess um i don't i just don't think it would have made any difference right like i Um, John Kerry, you know, in 2004 was sort of running to be as hawkish as George W. Bush, right? Like, you know, once we were entered into the war, the Democrats weren't going to say that they were opposed to it. I I don't know if you if you noticed or if you got to that point yet. But in the book, I mentioned one of the things I said is like. um, I could get into uh, the role of answer in the anti-war movement, but we'd be here all day. I mean, so I this this might I I think this might be interesting to your, you know, listeners, but it's just mm-hmm. um just speaking as a guy who was twenty one years old when he started doing all this. So maybe I you know I'm not the most informed guy. Certainly I wasn't on the ground where answer was, but it just it's like it just seemed that answer just, it was just one day like answer just was. The closest thing to a sort of institutional face of the anti war movement, which mm-hmm. is weird because my recollection is that they were just a like fairly, this is Act Now to Stop War and End Racism coalition. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just a fairly uh, obscure Maoist group. Um, but it, one of the things that just kept coming up over and over again, uh, you know, I, I, I got serious from in 2002 and probably went until 2006. Um, uh, It was just, it was just always like, there was always the answer question, right? Like um, endless debating about whether or not answer was the right face for sort of, you know, being the sort of the nonprofit, the, you know, the 5013C um, that was behind a lot of the big marches and and things. and then on top of that, like, look, like I, you know, um, this might this was probably very much a sort of local Connecticut thing, but um, uh, the we were all forever attaching a Palestine demand to the Iraq demands, and the constant accusation was that doing so was splintering what was available for the sort of anti-war coalition. Um, uh, Connecticut has a lot of weird internal factions politically in general. And one of them is West Hartford, which is a, uh, a home to a lot of sort of um, moneyed, left-leaning Jewish uh, people. And um, there was this sort of, you know, sense like, will we lose West Hartford? If You know, um, I guess my point is just that, like, just as there were all kinds of sort of individual coalitional sort of uh dramas and issues with getting the housing safety and tenant protection act passed in new york there were all kinds of weird coalitional things and infighting and questions about who the right leader should be but there was just no stakes in the iraq side because we didn't have a lever of power right there was no lever to push
1: right yeah Uh, yeah right so um that's interesting because uh going back to the housing um fight i have a couple questions about that and then we'll move on to more general things i just w- when it comes to rent stabilization and limiting the landlords um the reason i'm thinking of this is because levers of power there's like two sides to the levers of power and politics there's the political will there's the politicians there's what you can get polit- politicians to pass in terms of policy and then there's mm-hmm. The economic conditions that set limits on at least what the outcomes of those, po- those policies will be. So, like, if you uh, limit the the landlord's ability to raise rents, um, uh, how, what is the relationship between the, that stabilization policy and, say, property taxes or inflation? Sure. Um,
0: uh, so, so I mean, the the constant sort of. Mainstream economics uh, or neoliberal or what have you claim is that uh, rent stabilization ends up raising the rent for everyone who's not stabilized. So there's about a million rent stabilized units in uh, uh, New York City and maybe uh, 1.1 million uh, market rate units at this point. if I have, if I am current with that knowledge, um, there's also the the claim that, you know, landlords won't keep up the buildings, whatever. Um, without debating the sort of broader point, um, the, uh, the research on New York City specifically says that that is not true for the for the case of New York City. Um, that the that the the various um, negative effects that are attributed to rent stabilization don't actually show up in the empirical data about New York. And one of the reasons that that's proffered is just that like. Um, the rent is so high everywhere anyway. In other words, it like it's like it's swamped out by whatever effects the rent stabilization might have on raising rents and other people that like the rents would just be high anyway because, you know, of the the geographical constraints and things like that. Um, property taxes um, is interesting. Uh, I mean, if I own a property in New York, I probably wouldn't say that the property taxes are low, but the property taxes actually are fairly low um, for uh, a city of New York's size. So... Uh, in the 1970s, during the financial emergency, Staten Island was um, come, came very close to leaving New York and becoming part of New Jersey, um, which actually might make sense if you look at a map. Like, it just looks like it belongs in New Jersey and not New York, but uh, the city you know, uh, really didn't want that to happen, didn't want to lose a tax base, and also thought that it would be symbolically too crushing of a blow. So they struck a deal. With leaders in Staten Island, Staten Island has just a dramatically higher rate of uh, owner-occupied buildings than anywhere else in the city, and so uh, they figured out a deal where the property taxes are sort of held artificially low in order to please people in Staten Island and keep them in the fold of being part of New York City. So this has enabled things like um, in my old neighborhood, Prospect Lefferts Gardens, you have a you know you have a lot of um uh families black families uh families of caribbean descent who have um you know multi million dollar homes um even though no one in the family has ever had anything like that amount of money because they bought the house in 1960 or whatever and they've been able to pass it down from generation to generation and the artificially low property tax um, enables them to stay, the families to stay in those uh, buildings rather than sort of having to to, to sell them out from under them. Um, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to make the, the economic case for rent stabilization, but I'll say this: you know, if you ended rent stabilization tomorrow, um, by the next month there would be hundreds of thousands of evictions in New York City. I mean that that, that whatever you want to say about the macroeconomic situation. Rent stabilization keeps New York affordable, you know, affordable enough um, for hundreds of thousands of people and uh, people whose whose units are forcibly destabilized, as they can be in a few ways, um, are almost always have to leave.
1: Yeah, I'm not, of course, making a case against rent stabilization, but I was just wondering to what extent were other factors helpful Mm -hmm. uh, other than simply political organizing? to help set up conditions where rent stabilization could obtain. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, what were the property taxes uh, in New York? Like, uh, right. uh, 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 is there a connection between rents going up and property values going up? Mm-hmm. Um, is were was rent stabilization tied to inflation? So in other words, were mm-hmm. the landlords able to raise rents to match inflation right. or roughly um uh what's what kind of wage guarantees right. are there in new york you know yeah. do, so, do, you
0: know all those kinds of things so so the way that the rent guidelines board works is um you have uh uh at sort of sort of like at, at large members or public members um who are not meant to have a particular affiliation with either side you have two uh members who of the rent guides board who are supposed to uh, uh, represent the interests of, of landlords and two who are supposed to represent the interests of tenants. Um, those four votes pragmatically tend to sort of, uh, you know, uh, cancel each other out. Um, there's a lot of Kremlinology about how exactly it works behind, behind the scenes. It's generally believed that, uh, the at-large members, um, just vote the way that they're that they're directed to by the mayor, even though this mm. is supposedly an independent body. Mm. Um, the idea is that they're supposed to attempt to simulate a healthy uh, rental economy with the prices that their increases that they're setting um, for uh, a given year uh, in New York. So New York has has technically. Uh, been in a rent emergency uh, under the state definition of uh, having less than 5% vacancy um, since the 1930s. Right. So, yeah. So if, if the vacancy rate ever uh, fell uh, below that uh, uh, above, sorry, grew above that point or fell below that point, um, the, the the sort of standard um, then potentially the, uh, Rent guidelines board and laws wouldn't uh, apply anymore, but that's never going to happen because it's New York City. So, um, yeah. So De Blasio, you know, for all of his faults, was a big time lefty mayor, and so he had a couple years of zero percent increases. Um, uh, you know, you you think, see things like a one point two five percent increase. Uh, It was somewhat scandalous in this past year because Eric Adams allowed for significantly higher increases than had happened in the uh, (coughs) de Blasio administration. He probably would have done so sooner, but he couldn't under the conditions of the pandemic. Uh, The rents were frozen um, as a condition of sort of of the pandemic. Um, But there have been years in which for example, I think in the Giuliani years, where the increase year over year was like eight or nine or ten percent, uh, so that often the rent stabilized uh, increases were worse than what you were finding in the market rate uh, uh, sort of thing. So yeah, um, it's 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 a it's a big complicated topic. Um, yeah, we used to, we used to go I, every I'm, year.
1: I'm fascinated, but you know, I think it's not very fair to you to keep talking uh, about mm. on that because you have a book that you want to <clears throat> promote here, so um you one of the topics that you bring up in the book uh is occupy wall street mm-hmm. um as a, another kind of activism again this is i guess occupy also i i think in your estimation wasn't very close to the levers of power right and didn't and didn't really create that uh, snowball that uh could roll down the hill and smash the the left's enemies um how do you what What do you think went wrong with with Occupy Wall Street? I mean, I think back to that.
0: One? Yeah, when when I um, argue with people who are big uh, defenders of Occupy, you know, I often say to them, like, I don't even know like what the terms would be on which I would grade Occupy, because they did not define what their purpose was. Right? Like, there's that famous quote. um, <clears throat> that you know from one of the people there that uh uh demands uh you don't want to have demands uh because they're disempowering they're disempowering because d- they power can say no to you in other words like the fact that you that you're not going to get everything that you demand is supposedly de- disempowering and that's why you s- supposedly shouldn't uh have them um it is a sort of, sort of a vague anti-capitalist sort of a thing. Um, It was on the side of the angels in terms of directing anger at the financial industry in the United States. Um, It obviously was a uh, result of the uh, financial crisis and the machinations of capital that had brought the financial crisis upon us. And I, you know, I... Affirm the anger that was represented there, but anger is just not politics. And um, you know, it's so interesting the way that we sort of have these sort of cyclical reoccurrences of problems. Uh in the book, I quote um what's her name, Joe Freeman, I think, uh with the famous uh essay from the second wave of feminism in the 1970s. Um, the tyranny of structurelessness, mm-hmm. um, and her point, uh, among others, is that uh, you know, <clears throat> structurelessness—it's uh, not merely the problem is not merely that structurelessness. So no officers, no organization, no sort of process, no so no rules, no voting. Right? Occupy didn't vote on anything. Um, <clears throat> it's not just that you can't get things done, right? It's that the the stated goal. Of not having sort of unequal power relationships within your movement is not actually served by structurelessness because within structureless organizations, there's all manner of unhealthy power dynamics. The fact that you don't have, you know, officers, the fact that you don't have a president and vice president and treasurer or whatever doesn't do away with the inherent human tendency to have uh to have sort of you know uh people inappropriately pressuring others or factionalization or red baiting going on or uh you know or accusations of working for the man or whatever those things still happen but you you don't have actually any structure with which to address them
1: Mm -hmm. there was there was an attempt in occupy to create a a form of decision-making that would address some of the concerns that I think were raised uh, uh, in your book about that. Like for instance, um, they did vote. You, you'd have these, at least, now this is in Portland, but I, I think it's the same. It was same in Zuccotti park. You'd have these uh, gatherings. People would um, use the human microphone to speak. There was a progressive stack. Anyone could call for a vote. Um, then people would vote by, jazz fingers or whatever the gestures were and it was someone would count them and the only time I ever witnessed this was right before the uh, Portland version of well, uh, Occupy Wall Street got shut down by the cops so like a couple of like the night before it's like are we going to stay or are we going to go and that was put mm-hmm. to a vote um, and we decided to to pretend to stay Right. Uh, and um, but, but the, in the background they'd already started clearing out the them right. equipment
0: right. right um but i don't want to uh, i don't want to slander anyone but my as i and i can my stand to be corrected but my my recollection is that like they did twinkle fingers in zuccotti park but no one counted anything right like people uh, would people would do that but there was actually no one saying okay one two three four four or against so it's like it is that actually a vote right
1: no i guess not it was just did it seem like the people who interpreted the twinkle fingers were interpreting it correctly according to the Mm-mm. did everyone in the crowd agree with the interpreter <laughs> that it was roughly and usually what you wanted and what happened was that there would be very little dissent so it always be fairly clear anyway like right. you know, everyone but um yeah but okay but the the thing about occupy was that there was a unstated political purpose to the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was to create a left uh, dissonant movement against the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. That was all that really was. That was like, we are the left. We are opposed to Wall Street. We're opposed to the solutions being offered by the current administration and, and, and the D.C. consensus. And we're out in the parks. We're occupying space um outside of all of the regular politics we're not aligned with any political party mm-hmm. and certainly not with obama but occupy wall street over time became uh, occupy democrats right uh, um and and the, so that political purpose which was sort of unstated dissipated but i do think that was the idea
0: well and i and i will give credit we're due right which is that I do think that that is a salutary salutary uh, outcome of Occupy, which is, you know, I I think this is forgotten because 2008 feels a long time ago, but um, there was obviously a great deal of exhaustion uh, at the repeated horrors of the George W. Bush administration, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, for the record, for everyone at home was vastly more destructive than anything that Trump ever did. I mean, you had uh, the horrible quagmires in Iraq and Afghanistan, but you also had the complete inability to do anything to prevent the financial crisis. You had uh, the federal government sitting on its hands while a 1,000 people drowned in the street of New Orleans. Uh, You had uh, the warrantless wiretapping and a whole huge uh, surveillance network. You had torture at Guantanamo Bay and, uh, uh, in Iraq, uh, just again and again and again, I mean, you just had these, these huge problems, um, and coming out of that, I think a lot of really otherwise jaded sort of lefty people wanted to believe in Obama. And I say that as someone who wanted to believe in Obama, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, personally, again, like... (laughs) feeling totally exhausted and disillusioned by just the complete inability to make anything happen at all, despite all the hard work in the anti-war movement. And here's this guy, and he's talking about hope and change, and he's the first black, he's going to be the first black president, which is a big deal in and of itself. And I think what um, Occupy allowed people to do is it gave them permission to say, oh, right, we have Obama, it's a Democrat, and it's just business as usual, right? In other words, it gave them opportunity to say, Oh, right. He's a Democrat and no one is getting prosecuted for what happened in the financial crisis. Homeowners are not getting bailed out uh, who have lost their homes. Uh, And it really doesn't matter that much how much hope and change you have. And I think that that Occupy absolutely was effective at sort of lighting a fire that resulted. I mean, both uh, I think like I think Jacobin predates Occupy. And, and the new he does too, but it, it created this sort of fertile period for socialist art and letters and ideas, which sort of got into people's brains, and that led to things like the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. So that on that score, I think, excuse me, I think Occupy is um, worth praising. I just don't think Occupy was ever really a political event in any meaningful sense.
1: Yeah, well, you know, this podcast... Predated Occupy by a couple of years. Yeah, it (laughs) started in 2009. Um, In response to the economic crisis of 2008, it was, Diet Soap was born as a podcast. Um, So, yeah, uh, let me go back to some of my prepared questions here. Because if we think that it didn't have a politics, could it have had politics? This is controversial, uh, you know, provocative question. If the aim had been to cost Obama a, a second term, would that have been
0: political? If
1: that had been, the I, I mean,
0: thing? so I guess that's an interesting uh, question in the sense that I, I just I just don't define something as being meaningfully political by by the goal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I can throw a tea party in my house, and our goal can be to you know prevent Joe Biden from getting the. A presidency in 2024 it doesn't make it a political event what makes it a political event and this is a theme that goes throughout the book is um having a coherent idea about what you want to achieve some sense of how you might go about achieving it and what the long-term plan is you know i just wrote this piece on alexandria ocasio-cortez um <clears throat> which a lot of people didn't like but um I think some people misunderstood what I was saying and said, oh, you're you're asking a single Congresswoman to be able to create all this change. And like, that's not the point, right? You don't have to be able to win. We're mostly always gonna lose. The point is you have to articulate a theory of change, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am now quite jaded about the sort of Bernie Sanders sort of thing, but the Bernie Sanders sort of plan made a ton of sense. This guy's uniquely charismatic. He has an immense amount of credibility. Uh, he is uh, uh, has all kinds of great opinions on in terms of healthcare and labor issues and et cetera. And we elect him to be president and we sort of figure things out from there. And we've got a guy with his real lever on the hands of power. Um, like that's that's a theory of politics and it could have happened, right? That, that There is a world in which Bernie Sanders is elected president and a lot of things are different. Um, let's go to the park and parade around with signs that say shit is fucked up and bullshit, but have no sense of, you know, are we at all interfacing with electoral politics? If we're not, that's cool that there's a long history of that. Then what are we doing? Uh, What is the particular social uh, outcome we're trying to reach? Um, And to me, like, I think that you can see Occupy in, I mean, I'm saying this in sympathetic terms as like, a cool bit of like protest performance art, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of people getting together, saying, "Hey, we should all be mad about the way things are," and that did help to convince a lot of people of that. But there was there was no theory of politics involved with Occupy.
1: What about the George Floyd protests? <clears throat> um, uh, you uh, you write about the, 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 those protests in the book. You have a section mm-hmm. called. Um, Riots don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, uh, in a strange way, maybe the George Floyd protests were a repeat of Occupy?
0: Well, it's interesting. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's there's sort of like the the immediate moment, right? Like I, mm-hmm. one of the things that I'm not sure if I made it into the book, but um, you don't expect people. To sort of see George Floyd get get killed in May, and then like a week after that happens, have a sort of fully formed sort of political plan. Right. You, you would like for something to sort of emerge organically from the protests and from all of the work that was happening. I think part of what made um, the, the the sort of arc of this thing um, quite uh, sort of tragic to me was. The sort of gradual, long-term understanding that, oh, okay, we're just never going to get the get the Plan B, right? So uh, you have this 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 horrible event, and you have this extraordinarily sympathetic and understandable expression of rage in the streets over the serial murder of black people by the cops. Um, And then you have a unique moment in in American history in terms of um, everyone in society seemingly uh, paying attention to uh, uh, a reaction like this and wanting to, and many, many, many people, a huge portion of the American public, wanting to contribute to sort of what they're attempting to get. I think it's easy to forget um, there was a period of about a month when... Uh, a majority of Republicans in polling were uh, showing support for the George Floyd protest, Um, which in America in 21st century, if you get bipartisan consensus about what's so obviously a left-leaning political sort of tendency, um, that's remarkable. Um, But it never sort of, it just never sort of coalesced and and came together in anything. Uh, I write in the book extensively about the fact that I think the, media fixation on the defund the police uh, uh, demand was um, just a a truly terrible turn of events for this movement. Um, You know, I've, I've said before that I almost suspect that the defund the police demand became so central because it was unlikely to ever be taken seriously. And what I mean by that is if you have a set of sort of reforms and there's a chance as a political movement you can achieve them, but there's a chance you might not achieve them right If, the, if it's in play, if your if your activism, if your' outreach, if you're organizing, if your political work, if that stuff really matters and you might be able to get something and you might not be able to get something out of the system um, <clears throat> then that's a very scary scenario to be in right? If you think we can get meaningful reform, but we have to to be good at this, we have to be smart, we have to do good politics, we have to form coalitions, and we have to break bread with people we might not want to, and we have to reach across the aisle when it's strategically necessary, et cetera, et cetera, then you can screw it up and get it wrong and not get what you want, and that's scary. But if, on the other hand, you uh, make as your central demand the abolition of the police, knowing that you know, a tiny percentage of Democrats were polling in favor of that at the time, then you're, you've kind of let yourself off the hook, right? Because if you make a demand that has no chance of coming true, you can't be held accountable when it doesn't pass because it's never going to pass anywhere. Um, and so there is a sense in which, yes, the sort of BLM protests of 2020 or like Occupy in that, um, uh, it never really coalesced into anything. I think the tragedy is just that there was just vastly more public sentiment in support of BLM. Uh, and then the other tragedy is of course that um, a lot of it devolved into grift, you know?
1: Well, when did, look, remind me, cause you know, I'm trying to keep the timeline straight in my head. When did Bernie Sanders concede that he had lost the primaries and when did the George Floyd protests hit hit the streets?
0: That is a good question, but certainly Bernie conceded before uh, the heart of the George Floyd pro- protests. Yeah. I want to say that they would that. So Obama, I talk about this in the book, but Obama struck the sort of famous back backdoor deal where. Um, Bernie had just won Nevada, I believe, mm. and um, the New York Times ran a piece saying uh, that he's the he's the favorite in the race, and it might be difficult for uh, other Democrats to prevent to stop his momentum. And immediately thereafter, Barack Obama, uh, <clears throat> uh, according to multiple reports, uh, worked the phones and talked to a bunch of minor candidates like Pete Buttigieg and convinced them to drop out. Uh, in order to rally around... All of them. Everyone of them. dropped out. Right. Yeah. Um, that, certainly that happened before George Floyd died. I think I think that was February or March, but I'm not sure.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and then it, after that, it became pretty obvious at the very next primary, which I think was in South Carolina, right, uh, where Biden won his first primary, mm-hmm. um, that... Uh, wait, wait. I think the calls came after Biden's win. Mm. But I think that's right. But in any case, it became clear that Sanders didn't have much, the same shot we thought he had. And it right. was, and when, and also once Sanders was running just against Biden, that his campaign was just different. He didn't seem to want it anymore. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Um, um, it's important to say, uh, I think this is lost. Biden was considered kind of a minor dark horse candidate at the beginning of the cycle. Um, uh and if you actually go back and look at sort of mainstream, I think there, there, there's the sort of uh, there's there's been this uh, misconception that's run that like, oh, Biden was always the sort of the establishment guy. And, you know, the establishment just got what it wanted. Eventually, um, Biden only became the establishment's guy after a lot of people dropped out because it turned out that they weren't viable. And uh, I mean, the, the knock on Biden was obvious. He was too old, right? And there was a sense that um, <clears throat> he was yesterday's news. He was Obama's VP, and that just wasn't wasn't going to fly. So it's important to remember that because, um, yeah, I, you know, the point that I that I keep making, is, and I think people need to understand, is in 2016, Bernie Sanders significantly outperformed his fundamentals, right? In other words, mm-hmm. if you look at the composition of the electorate, the kind of voters that he did well with. Uh, the states that were necessary for him to, in order to secure the, the nomination, the amount of money that he had raised uh, and his the size of his operation, et cetera, Um, it, it was so shocking because the fundamentals were really against him. In 2020, Bernie Sanders badly underperformed his fundamentals. Now, the, mm-hmm. the Brookings Institution ran a big, long analysis of uh, the different states how he had polled the size of his of his infrastructure there the amount of money spent on, on media and stuff and he just performed really badly compared to how he should have which should inform all of us about sort of moving forward uh, i think unfor- i think that he was his team he and his team were badly stung in 2016 by constantly being called racist and sexist and i think that he lost some of his sort of universalizing class focused appeal when doing that mm-hmm. but also young people didn't turn out once again
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, So the the reason I brought up Bernie Sanders, and this will be my for the first half, this will be maybe our last go round before we head over to the Patreon parrot room, um, is because if we can imagine that that the George Floyd protests had emerged during the Democratic primaries rather than after they had really been resolved, Mm -hmm. would there have been more of a chance for them to become political? As something within the Democratic Party that was being contested, or do you think Sanders would have ended up having to embrace, embrace defund the police, um, uh, and give you know sort of give Biden or whoever was on the other side there the the sane position? What uh, was the defund the police as a far left stance within the Democratic Party? Uh, you know just very so convenient that it would have been unavoidable um for someone like Sanders
0: yeah i don't it's it, that is a fair, very fair question um i mean you would think that if you were just sort of, let's say that um george floyd happens in 2019 instead of 2020 right mm-hmm. um there is a old new york times piece on the candidates in the democratic race that really brings me a lot of uh heartache when i see it because it's Um, it's got, there's gotta be like 20 candidates or something like that listed. And it's like, okay, which of these candidates wants Medicare for all and who will only settle and who's willing to settle for a a public option? You know, it's like this, it's like a dispatch from another world, right? Mm -hmm. Where any of that stuff is possible. Um, yeah, there's a good chance that in the early stages of the primary where, Uh, healthcare had been the litmus test, that police reform becomes the litmus test. And I don't, I I don't see Bernie Sanders personally saying, we have to defund the police, right? Um, It's just not his style. I mean, you'd think that uh, a scenario like that would benefit um, the most prominent Black candidate, but unfortunately, she was a notoriously aggressive (laughs) prosecutor. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, that's that's a good counterfactual. I don't know that how how it would have gone. Um,
1: well, I mean, what Sanders would have done if he had been consistent would have run on how his economic vision right. would have changed the conditions and, and made it less that made these confrontations less likely, along with, you know, some over, you know, community oversight of the police and more uh, strict and thoroughgoing uh consequences for police brutality
0: right i mean we we know how it how it turned out in real life right which is that um democrats didn't really have to interface with a lot of the specific demands of black lives matter because they were running on we're not trump right right and just like clinton did during the la riots right right?
1: clinton came out and he turned Neoliberalism into some great democratic progressive policy. Like, I'll bring black capitalism into, right.
0: <laughs> into I mean, the mix. If, okay. if you don't want to hash out uh, a very sticky political question, like the fact that, okay, the activist class of your party is demanding de- defunding the police. I mean, again, like I, I think I said, like Planned Parenthood which has absolutely no purview in the world of criminal justice at all, put out a defund the, the police statement, right? Like defunding the police became widely, widely accepted by all manner of institutions um, in American life and by a lot of uh, politicians who you know, now wouldn't go near it. But when you have the, oh, well, this other guy's a fascist, then it's an extremely uh, convenient way to avoid the difficult conversation, right? Like all you have to say is, well, you know. Well, you know. I'm not going to talk about defund the police today, but the other guy is an insane fascist, and so we need to get rid of him, which is convenient.
1: If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.